upbuilding, edifying. This morning, I would like to uh, turn to 1 Peter chapter 2 for our text. 1 Peter chapter 2. And uh, taking us back to another lesson in in the ecclesiology and, and just the New Testament church and what that looks like and how it looks, what it looks like today in 2015. Um, subtitle that I've chosen is, uh, is a, just, I've entitled it A Discernible Difference. And um, as we look back across history, we realize that unfortunately there were too many times when the church responded more like the world than what the church should respond. And um, there's, uh, God's got something more for us, and uh, we'd like to talk about that this morning. I'm going to stand once more, and I'm going to do what we did last time. Go ahead and stand. Let's read this passage of Scripture together. I think if you help read it, it uh, maybe uh, impacts you more than if I would just read it. So let's read together. First Peter chapter 2, and, uh, starting in verse 1 through 13. Therefore, laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking, as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word, that ye may grow thereby, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious, coming to him as to a living stone, rejected indeed by man, but chosen by God and precious. You also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is also contained in the scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious. But to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble, being disobedient to the word to which they also were appointed. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praise of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. Thank you. You may be seated. I think a series of messages on the church would seem incomplete without addressing this passage of Scripture 
in Peter, 1 Peter chapter 2. We notice that this passage starts out with the word therefore, indicating a contingent thought from the previous argument that was being laid. And so if we would go back to chapter 1 in the preceding verses, we would find a call to holiness. And we see that, I believe, in verse uh, 15 and 16 where it says, in chapter 1 where it says, But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. Peter shrouds this instructive imperative uh, to be holy with an argument that he teaches it based on God's enduring word. In fact, the last verse, I think, in chapter 1, he says it this way. Now, this is the word, and by the word, by the way, that word is the word rhema. This is the specific word that God has spoken to you by the gospel was, was, was being preached to you. So, Peter's, what I believe Peter is saying is that he's calling us to holiness, but it wasn't just something that he concocted in his own mind or in his own heart. He's saying, I'm, I'm calling you to holiness because this is what God said. This is what his word said. He's bringing us back to something substantial, something truth-based. And, uh, and, and so we have something that we can lean on. This past week, <coughs> I came across a conversation that was debating whether the push for transgender toleration was acceptable or not, which, by the way, if you are not aware, is being pushed and promoted by at, at the level of the uh, public school system in a very forceful way. Um, and, of course, you have to ask yourself, why do they start there? Very intentional. Uh, I don't know if you're aware or not, but in 2013, the state of California passed a bill that now allows transgender individuals, students, to choose which bathroom or locker room they would like to use at school. And so this was being discussed back of the debate. But I found that both sides of the debate and their argument for and against was extremely weak and, and non-viable at, at the least. Um, it was particularly concerning to me to hear the reasons that were given of those who were against it. And these are some of the, see, there's some of the, uh, the reasons that they gave. One expressed concern about the, legitic, the, legitic, the, litig, the litigations, that's what I want to say. So one was concerned about the litigations that we are going to face if we open up this door. Another one was uncomfortable thinking about their child sharing a transgender bathroom. Another one was infuriated that it would put their child in such an environment. But no one, no one came out with any substance of truth behind their conviction. It was just their opinion against the other person's opinion. 
And when you have no basis of truth behind your convictions, when you have nothing to base your convictions upon, when there is no standard of verity in, which you be, in what you believe, then you lose your ability to give a resilient answer to a problematic issue. There's just nothing there. And Peter was not doing that. In fact, he did just the opposite. He based his instruction to be holy on the fact that it is God's word. God is holy. And because he is holy, his word also calls us to be the same. Then he comes to chapter 2. And once he lays that argument, then he comes to chapter 2 and he says, Therefore, or in other words, on this basis, on the basis of truth, now let's move forward with the following instruction. Therefore. And so what's the therefore? Well, he starts in. The next one's saying, laying aside. And by the way, this, this phrase, laying aside, has the idea of let it be done once and for all. Do it and get it behind you. Lay aside has the idea to put away, to cast off. Stop making excuses for your sin. Well, I'm human and I'm, I'm prone to fail. If you think that way, you're going to fail. When we, get our, when we get in our minds that, listen, I am a new creature. I'm born again. I am, all things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. I'm not going to succumb to that trash or to those ideas or to those thoughts that Satan is bringing my way. It's done once and for all. Lay it aside. Therefore, lay aside. And what does he call us to lay aside? He calls us to put away malice, which is badness or depravity. Put it away. Get it behind you. Walk away from it. Put away deceit. The uh, Greek word is dolos, and it's a root that we use as the word decoy. Deceit, trick. Put it away from you. It's past. Put away hypocrisy. Acting under a feigned part, very similar to deceit. And by the way, I think I mentioned this before. I'll say it again because I think it's important for us to be aware of it. John Regeer, who has counseled many, many people and particularly has dealt with many people from our culture, <coughs> has said that he has come across the sin of hypocrisy among the plain people in ways that he has not with many other peoples that he's counseled. And I think part of that is, is because we, it is easy to hide behind a facade. We can use our plain dress, we can use our coverings, we can use our, our, our pious uh, resistance to, toward our enemies, whatever it is, to hide behind and our hearts still be as full of, of sin and wickedness as any other person. Put it away. Stop being somebody else and live out who you say you are. Put away evil <coughs> or envy. <coughs> it means ill will or jealousy. 
Put away all evil speaking, defamation, or backbiting. And how many times are we guilty of backbiting? What do you say when the other person isn't around? Does it build? Does it cause us to gossip? Does it cause us to speak things that, def- that, that defame the other person? He said, put it away. Why do we put these things aside? Why is he calling us to put it aside? Is it because we fail or we, f- we, we, we will face less than desirable consequences if we disobey him? And maybe the question we should ask is, do we face less than desirable consequences if we engage in these things? And the answer is yes, we, there is a consequence for that. However, that is not the impetus, that is not the motivation behind our reason for putting it away. Not because of the consequences that we face. We lay it aside because God is holy and he commands us to be holy. It is a holy thing to lay these things aside and not engage in them. In verse 4 through 8 of this same passage, we see a contrasting response to the call of holiness. To many, the call of holiness becomes an offensive and narrow road because it thwarts our inner craving, the inner cravings of our soul. Man, being the sons of Adam, naturally and spiritually, tend to move away from God. Our souls lust after the same desires, the same preemptive desires that caused Eve to reach out and take that forbidden fruit. So when we don't have a relationship with the one who is holy, we do not value holiness. To those who are not holy... The way that God calls us to be, God becomes a stumbling block, it says. To the builders or to those who are disobedient, a stone and a stumbling block and a rock of offense. He's a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. That's what Jesus Christ becomes to those who do not believe. But to you who believe, he says, to you who believe, he is precious something that we value. Obviously, this is talking about the church. He's referencing the bride of Christ. And it begs a very serious question from us. Is there a discernible difference between the church of Jesus Christ and other religions of this world? I didn't ask you if it should be a difference, if there should be a difference, I said, is there a difference? We all know there there should be a difference. But the question we need to ask is, is there a difference? Okay. All right. Let's lay that argument aside. Let's get a lot more personal than that. Because we can sort of paint a general picture with the church. And so we're going to bring it right back to home. 
rather than asking about the church and other religions, is there a difference between you and the unbeliever that you work alongside of at work? Or, be, or between you and that lady in the same aisle at the grocery store who's not a believer? Is there a difference in your life with those individuals? And how do you measure that? If you say yes, how do you measure that? Before you answer, I'd like to have you think back to Henry's message last Sunday. And I would like to challenge you that is your difference based on the overt sins that you, that you see very openly and honestly, or the more subtle covert sins that primarily deal with attitudes of the heart? Which ones are you merging it by? Is the difference that you are making with that individual that you work alongside or that you shop groceries with in the, in the grocery store, is that difference based on sins of commission or sins of omission? And I want you to wrestle deeply with the thought of being or having a discernible difference and what that means. What criteria do you use to measure yourself? Are you like my wife, who, before she was my wife, as a young teenager, she chafed with wearing the headship veil and dressing modestly. She was embarrassed by it and wished to wear her hair down like many other girls. Yet outwardly, she wore it because it was the accepted norm. But inwardly, she resented it and was ashamed of it. By the way, I asked her permission to use this example. She okayed it. Outwardly, there was a discernible difference between her and the girls that she worked alongside of at the restaurant. There was a discernible difference on the outside. She was clothed modestly. She had a, a modestly dressed outfit, and she veiled her glory, the, the, the length of her hair, as Scripture asks us to do. But was there a discernible difference on the inside? And I think if you were to ask her, she would admit that at that point in her life, she was like the millions of other people who claim the name of Christ, but do not experience the life that he gives. And so the question remains, was there a discernible difference between her and the gals with whom she worked? Okay, so the argument then goes this way. The argument continues. Uh, if her outward performance, which we call works, was the only thing that differentiated her with her co-workers, should she have paid no attention to the works of modesty and covering up her glory? In other words, is God only concerned with inner desirable or dis, uh, discernible differences? Is that the only thing that God is concerned about? Is he only concerned about the inner part of man? We hear that a lot, don't we? 
Well, really, the only thing that matters is the heart. Well, what does Scripture say? Let's go to Scripture to see what God says about that. Let's come back to the passage, verse 9 and 10, that says, But you, speaking to the church, speaking to those who believe, speaking to those who are holy, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may pray, that you may proclaim the praise of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but now are a people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now obtained mercy. Beloved, I beg you, as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly loves which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. Does God, is God only concerned about inner change? Well, that's still not really fair to you. I know I'm putting you on the spot because if you say yes, we're missing a, a, a link. If you say no, then we're missing a link, right? Okay, let's follow the thought. These verses speak of a discernible or a distinctive difference, a separation of the body of Christ from all other human organizations. The separation that we see here in these verses is not due to exclusiveness as much as due to contrast. Okay? Unfortunately, many in our culture have taken this verse and cloistered away in their own little huddle, far removed from having significant impact outside of their immediate surroundings. Would you agree with me? Many take this and say, okay, let's just huddle away. We're sort of our own little people. Uh, we, we, are, we are called by God. But, but the problem is if we go down that road, we lose any kind of significant impact to those outside of those who are very close to our immediate surrounding. Some of the fruit that comes from that mentality is seen when people quibble and argue how their distinctiveness should be protected and or displayed in other words, more energy is spent deciphering how we will stay distinct from the world than we do in building each other up in having an in intuitive response to evil. When we spend more time discussing how we can stay distinct from the world than we do challenging each other how we can be built up in having an intuitive response to evil. When we see evil, we say, no way. We're not going to take part of that. We're not going to get sucked into the fads and the fashions of the world. That's not part of who we are. When we stop building each other up with those challenges and spend more time trying to decipher how we're going to stay distinct, we're going to lose the battle. The, dis the, the, desire, the discernible difference that I'm referencing 
stems primarily, or first of all, not exclusive to, but it starts with what comes out of the heart. So yes, God is, God is certainly concerned about interchange. Absolutely he is. Is it all about the heart? Well, not, yes, 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 and no. Uh, because secondly, I would also say, uh, the, but secondary from, from is what characterizes the outward man. It, it also matters how you present yourself, how the works manifest themselves. In other words, it has to start with the heart. But the heart dictates what is seen on the outside. And so both matter to God. Both matter to God. We cannot exclusively say that the only thing that matters is the heart. And then live like anybody else. The heart has to match up to the holiness that God calls us to. So that our works, what we see is going to bear witness of that. I want to give you an example. And to do this, I'd like to invite all the children up front, 12 years old and younger, come up front. Any child that wants to come up that is under three, maybe your parents can come with you, okay? Any child under three is invited to come. Your parents can come along with you. But 12 and under, come on up. I want you to sit on the floor here. And I'm going to tell you a story. <coughs> all right. How are you all today? Good. Who all likes a story? Come, you can come. You want to kneel up here? All right. I'm going to tell you a story about a young man named Dirk Willems. Dirk Willems, okay? That was his name, Dirk Willems. Who's ever heard that? Has anybody ever heard that story? Anybody ever heard the story of Dirk Willems? All right. A long, long time ago, I mean, it was about 450 years ago, back in 1569. Who can remember that far back? It was a lot longer than your grandpa and your great-grandpa and your great-great-grandpa. It was a long, long time ago. There was a man named Dirk Willems, and he lived in the Netherlands, okay? The Netherlands was a place where there was lots of water, and uh, today we call it Holland, but that was in the, uh, we were, my wife and I were over there a couple years ago, and we were in this place, close to the place where Dirk Willems lived, but Dirk lived in a time of, of uh, when, when his country was ruled, um, uh, the, the, the rulers of his country were also the rulers of the church, okay? So those who were in charge of the country were also in charge of the church. Now today we have it much different. Today we have Pastor Keith and we have Pastor Laverne and Pastor Jake and Henry and myself as being pastor of the congregation here, Right? And then we have, um, and then we have, on the, on the other side, we have the, those governing the country. We have President Obama, and his congressmen, and, and the House of Representatives, and all those giving leadership to the country. So, 
we have that separated today. But it wasn't that way when, when, when Dirk lived. The pastors were uh, of, the, of the Catholic Church. It was the Catholic Church. And by the way, a lot of their churches were big and massive and had lots of gold. A lot of attention got put into the building. Unfortunately, not a lot of attention got put into the heart. Okay, <coughs> but uh, but the pastors of the Catholic Church were also the governors of the of the of the land, and so they had a lot of rules and regulations. And if you did not obey what they said, guess what would happen to you? Who wants to guess? You could get burned at the stake. Oftentimes, you were put into prison. Yes, you were you were you were martyred. You could drown. A lot of times they drowned the women. Oftentimes they would burn the men at stake. They were very torturous to the people that didn't obey them. They had very strict rules. They had to do this or else you were, or else you were toast. Well, one of the rules that they had was that the, that the, uh, uh, the children, the babies, had to be baptized. So once you were born... You, the mom and dad had to take them to the priest, and the priest would baptize them. But Dirk Willems was taught differently, and he, he rejected that notion. He was taught by others that only those who believed that were old enough to believe in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, what we call a believer's baptism, only those were supposed to be baptized. It didn't help to baptize a baby because a baby couldn't, he, they, they didn't know what it meant to be baptized. So he was taught that only those who believed in Jesus could be baptized or should be baptized. Well, because he believed this, he also let other people come to his house, and they had church services at his house. When the authorities weren't watching, they would sneak into their house, and they would have, they would have church services and then there were also some other people that were, that were baptized there, some believers that came to faith in Jesus. They were baptized at his house, and the authorities found out about it. And guess what happened? He was taken to a prison. And the prison was that, that, that may not have been that prison there. I just, picked a, I just picked a castle. But it was an old castle with a moat around it. Now, who knows what a moat is? Does anybody know what a moat is? Okay, so there, yes, you're exactly right, Michael. There's a castle here, and all the way around the, the, the castle is a wide body of water so that those inside the castle couldn't get out and those outside couldn't get in except over the bridge. So the only thing they had to guard really closely was the bridge, okay? So he was put into an old castle as a prison. And there he sat, day after day after day. But somehow, and we don't know how, somehow Dirk began to get a hold of some old rags. And he hid them when the guards came around, but when they weren't looking, he would get his rags out, and he would start tying them together. And eventually he, had a long, he made a long rope out of these rags. And one day, when no one was looking, Dirk somehow tied that rope, and he climbed up over the wall and outside, and he got let down by that rope, and he was on the outside, free. The only problem was that the moat, the water around the castle, had just frozen over not too long before that. 
and he wasn't sure if the ice was going to hold him or not. But he thought, the only way, the only chance I have is to try it. And so Dirk began to run across the ice. And all of a sudden, one of the guards, they were called thief catchers, one of the thief catchers saw him, and he started running after Dirk. And the faster that the thief catcher ran, the faster Dirk ran, and he ran across the, the ice, and it was really thin. And fortunately for Dirk, he had lost a lot of weight while he was in prison because they didn't feed him well, and that caused him to get across the ice. But as he was running almost to the other side of the, of the lake, all of a sudden he heard a crack, splash, and all of a sudden, help, help. And he turned around, and the thief catcher had fallen through the ice. And he was struggling in the water to stay up on top of the water, and he couldn't get out. And he kept yelling, help, I need help. And Dick and Dirk Willems, he stopped. And he thought to himself, should I help? If I help, I might end up in prison again. If I don't, I get to go free. And what do you think Dirk did? Dirk turned around, and he went back and helped the thief catcher get out of the water. The one that was just pursuing him, the one that he was just moments before running away from, Dirk went back and helped get him out of the water. The thief catcher was so grateful. He was so happy. And he thanked him. And the thief catcher, out of his gratefulness, was going to let Dirk go free. But by that time, the magistrate, the guy in charge of the prison, saw what was going on. He came out to the shore. And he bellowed from shore. He told the thief catcher, he said, Bring Dirk back here. And the thief catcher debated whether he should or not. And again, the, the magistrate from the shore, he said, do you remember the oath that you gave when you took this job? If you, break, if you let Dirk go free, you will be in treason, or meaning you will have gone against the law, against your oath, and you will be guilty, and, will go, and, and, and you will be, die because of, of, of letting him go free. And so the thief catcher rearrested Dirk and took him back to shore, to prison. Dirk went back to prison again. And there he sat, but not long after, on May the 16th, 1569, he was sentenced to be executed. That day, they took him back to his hometown, and they bound him up, and they started a fire, and they put him right in the middle of the fire. But that day, a strong east wind was blowing so much that the flames didn't come up to his body. It just burned the bottom of his legs. And it was excruciating painful. And it was a long-lasting, painful experience for Dirk. And he would cry out, Oh, my Lord, my God. In fact, it's said that the town next to him, in the same direction that the wind was blowing, heard Dirk crying the next town over, heard Dirk, Dirk crying out, Oh, my Lord, my God. They said that he cried out over 70 times. He would cry out, Oh, my Lord, my God, because the flames were just burning his legs. It didn't come up and, and kill him. 
Finally, the judge who was at the scene couldn't take it anymore, couldn't take the suffering anymore. And he wheeled his horse. He was sitting on top of a horse. And he wheeled his horse around, and he yelled out to the executioner, he said, and he told him to execute uh, Dirk. <clears throat> he said, um, he said um, dispatch the man with a quick death. And the executioner did. We don't know how he killed him, but he uh, put Dirk to death um, because the fire just didn't come up high enough to kill him. He was only burning his legs. But Dirk died because of going back and helping the thief catcher. If he wouldn't have gone back to help him, he could have been free. Now, what caused Dirk to go back, okay? Now, you can go back to your parents, and then I'll help your mom and dad think through that thought, okay? <coughs> Did you? Good. Got a future pastor up here. I remember hearing that story as a youngster and the image of the man's hand reaching out to help his enemy is still etched in my mind's eye from that time on. For his goodness, he received prison, torture, and death. My childish sense of justice and, and fair play was undone at that time. Death for virtue seemed unfair to me. Yet I was intrigued with his response. Why did Dirk Willems turn back? And for the rest of this message, for the last couple minutes together, I want to wrestle with that question. Why did Dirk turn back? One of the sterling differences that biblical Christianity presents as compared to all other religions of the world is how she relates to her enemies. Most of so-called Christianity today is not discernibly different in its historic record for sure from that of any other religion in the way that it treats its enemies. Dirk's decision to turn back was not a rational, ethical decision, but rather an intuitive response. I want you to think about that. Intuitive responses come about with a heart conviction. You can, do you can ethically do the right thing without a conviction. You can be ethically correct without a heart conviction. But an intuitive response to evil comes from a deep-seated conviction in your heart. The more logical conclusion was that if he were to go back to help the thief catcher, he too would fall through the ice, and they both would drown. Jesus' commandment to love your enemy 
doesn't require futile suicide. With the exception of only a few in the world who call themselves Christian, men and women in such a strait would take up the arm of flesh in an attempt to save their own lives. And as I look at my own as I looked at my own heart as I was studying this, I, I just had to ask myself, how would I have responded? I know how I want to respond. I don't know how I would have responded. So why did Dirk turn back? In other words, what was the discernible difference in Dirk's life? I'd like to draw your attention to the last part of our text. And I don't know if you picked this up or not, but there was a phrase in, cha- in verse uh, 12, verse 11, <coughs> that says, um, this computer's doing little koofy things here, that pilgrims is supposed to be circled. Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims. Sojourners and pilgrims. The word sojourner, or stranger, I think the King James uses, means having a home near, that is, a by-dweller. Okay, he's a temporary resident. You're a temporary resident. A pilgrim is an alien, uh, alien alongside or a, a uh, resident foreigner. So it's like somebody from Germany is living here in the States for a certain amount of time. They're not a citizen. They just have, they're here on a visa. And what, what Peter was saying that we, we, are, we are here on this earth with a visa. We're just here with a visa. Perhaps chief among the considerations in Dirk Willem's mind was a basic Anabaptist motive that teaches the doctrine of the two kingdoms. This concept was pounded into them. They taught it, they lived it, they believed it. Their writings over and repeatedly reveal the extent of their belief. I want to give you an example. One of the martyrs wrote these words. There were from the beginning of the world two classes of people, a people of God and a people of the devil. The children of God have always been persecuted and dispersed so that they have always been in a minority and sometimes very few in number so that they had to hide themselves in caves and dens but the ungodly have always been powerful and have prevailed. Now, this is just a, just a shadow of the many writings of how they believed in the two-kingdom concept. Jesus was here to set up a new country, a new nation, a distinct group of people, if you will. The ones that would follow Jesus, the Jesus of the Gospels, would take up a new citizenship, there would also be a change of allegiance from their former national heritage to the new. This is what characterizes those who are in the hall of faith. Hebrews chapter 11. Let's read that. Verses uh, 13 through 16. 
These all died in faith, not having received the promise, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For those who say, say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. They're here on a visa. And truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return. But now they desire it better. That is a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. I think one of the reasons Dirk Willems turned back is because in his heart and in his mind, he had a clear sense of a two-kingdom concept. He wasn't here. This wasn't his dwelling place. It was a temporary dwelling place. This wasn't his eternal home. There's a third reason that I'd like to give as a reason for Dirk, Dirk Willems to turn back. And I'd like to just say, and I think you've heard me probably say this before, but at the core of God's kingdom, there is a driving force that trumps all other powers. And who would like to tell me what that power is? What is the power that trumps all other powers? It is the energy of love. It is the energy of love. Love has been and always will be. It has been and always will be. The most basic source of creative energy that navigates God's kingdom. I am convinced that the only force strong enough to take Dirk Willems back across that ice was an extraordinary outpouring of God's love in his heart. The only kind of love I know that extends to enemies is the love taught and lived by Jesus. This kind of love had shaped Dirk's character to such an extent that in a situation, in a circumstance of great personal danger, he was able to express his love with an intuitive response. And I believe God's I believe God intends that the hallmark of Christianity be seen in a nation of people that would be discernibly different by their love and by their gospel. Hence, it would be characterized both internally as well as externally. And I think that's what God is looking for as his church, as his bride. It's not enough just to change the outside. I'm not minimizing the outside. The, because if the, inside is, if the inside is characterized, the outside will too. Don't be one on the outside and tell me you're okay inside. It just doesn't match up. God wants from us to show himself strong, both in our hearts and by the way we live. Let's pray, and after that I'm going to turn it back to Henry to dismiss as you wish.